0: Part one Chapter two of Don by Robert U. Benson. This recording is in the public domain. I shall be delighted, Monsignor, said the thin, clever faced statesman in his high, dry voice. I shall be delighted to sketch out what seemed to me the principal points in the century's development. Profound silence fell upon all the table. Really, Monsignor Masterman thought to himself, as he settled down to listen. He had done very well so far, he had noticed the old priest opposite smiling more than once, contentedly, as their eyes met. Father Jervis had come to him, as he had promised, for half an hour's good talk, before lunch, and they had spent a very earnest thirty minutes together. First they had discussed with great care all the persons who would be present at lunch, not more than eight, besides themselves. The priest had given him a little plan of the table, showing where each would sit, and had described their personal appearance, and recounted a salient fact or two about every one. These were all priests except Mr. Manners himself and his secretary. The rest of the time had been occupied in information being given to the man who had lost his memory, with regard to a few very ordinary subjects of conversation. The extraordinary fairness of the weather, a new opera produced with unparalleled success by a well-known composer of whom Monsignor had never heard, A recent eucharistic congress in tokyo from which the cardinal had just returned and the scheme for redecorating the interior of archbishop's house there had not been time for more but these subjects under the adroit handling of father jervis had proved sufficient and up to the preconcerted move when monsignor had uttered the sentence about this study of mr manners history of twentieth-century development which had drawn from the author the words recorded above all had gone perfectly smoothly there had been a few minor hitches, for example, the food and the manner of serving it, and the proper method of consuming it, had furnished a bad moment or two, and once Monsignor had been obliged to feign sudden deafness on being asked a question, on a subject of which he knew nothing, by a priest whose name he had forgotten, until Father Jervis slid in adroitly and saved him. Yet these were quite unnoticed, it appeared, and could easily be attributed to the habit of absent-mindedness. For which Monsignor Masterman was relieved to learn he was almost notorious, and now the crisis was past, and Mr. Manners was launched. Monsignor glanced almost happily round the tall dining-room from which the servants had already disappeared, and with his glass in his hand, settled himself down to listen and remember the crisis to my mind and the religious situation began the statesman, looking more professional than ever, with his closed eyes, thin wrinkled face, and high forehead. The real crisis is to be sought in the period from 1900 to 1920. This was the period, you remember, of tremendous social agitation. There was the widespread revolution of the Latin countries, beginning with France and Portugal, chiefly against authority, and most of all against monarchy, since monarchy is the most vivid and the most concrete embodiment of authority, and in Teutonic and Anglo-Saxon countries against capital and aristocracy. It was in these years that socialism came most near to dominating the civilized world and indeed you will remember that for long after that date it did dominate civilization in certain places now the real trouble at the bottom of all this was the state in which religion found itself and you will find gentlemen said the quasi lecturer in parentheses glancing round the attentive faces that religion always is and always has been at the root of every world movement in fact it must be so The deepest instinct in man is his religion, that is, his attitude to eternal issues, and on that attitude must depend his relation to temporal things. This is so, largely, even in the case of the individual. It must therefore be infinitely more so in large bodies or nations, since every crowd is moved by principles that are the least common multiple of the principles of the units which compose it. Of course, this is universally recognized now, but it was not always so. There was a time, particularly at this period of which I am now speaking, when men attempted to treat religion as if it were one department of life, instead of being the whole foundation of every and all life. To treat it so is, of course, to proclaim oneself as fundamentally irreligious, and, indeed, very ignorant and uneducated. To resume, however, religion at this period was at a very strange crisis that it could possibly be treated in the way I have mentioned, shows how very deeply irreligion had spread. There is no such thing, of course, really, as irreligion, except by a purely conventional use of the word. The irreligious man is one who has made up his mind either that there is no future world, or that it is so remote, as regards effectivity, as to have no bearing upon it, and that is a religion, at least it is a dogmatic creed, as much as any other the causes of this state of affairs i take to have been as follows religion up to the reformation had been a matter of authority as it is again now but the enormous development of various sciences and the widespread of popular knowledge had in the first flush distracted attention from that which is now in all civilized countries simply an axiom of thought viz that a revelation of god must be embodied in a living authority safeguarded by god Further, at that time, science and exact knowledge generally had not reached the point which they reached so little later, of corroborating, in particular after particular, so far as they are capable of doing so, the revelation of God known as Catholicism, and of knowing their limitations where they cannot. Many sciences, at this time, had gone no further than to establish certain facts which appeared— to the very imperfectly educated persons of that period to challenge and even to refute certain facts or deductions of revelation psychology for example strange as it now appears in our own day actually seemed to afford other explanations of the universe than that of revelation we will discuss details presently social science at that time too moved in the direction of democracy and even socialism i know it appears monstrous and indeed almost incredible the men who really have some claim to be called educated seriously maintain that the most stable and the most reasonable method of government lay in the extension of the franchise that is in reversing the whole eternal and logical order of things and permitting the inexpert to rule the expert and the uneducated and the ill-informed to control by their votes that is by sheer weight of numbers the educated and the well-informed yet such was the case and the result was since all these matters act and react that the idea of authority from above in matters of religion was thought to be as undemocratic as in matters of government and social life men had learnt that is to say something of the very real truth in the theory of the least common multiple and as in psychology and many other sciences had presumed that the little fragment of truth that they had perceived was the whole truth mr manners paused to draw breath obviously he was enjoying himself enormously he was a born lecturer and somehow the rather pompous sentences were strangely alive and strangely interesting above all they fascinated and amazed the prelate at the head of the table for they revealed to him an advance of thought and an assurance in the position they described that seemed wholly inexplicable such phrases as all educated men the well-informed and the rest these were vaguely familiar to him yet surely in a very different connexion he had at the back of his mind a kind of idea that these were the phrases that the irreligious or the agnostics applied to themselves yet here was a man obviously a student and a statesman as he knew calmly assuming scarcely even giving himself a trouble to state that all educated and well-informed persons were catholic christians he settled himself down to listen with renewed interest as mr manners began once more well he said to come more directly to our point let us next consider what were these steps and processes by which catholic truth once more became the religion of the civilised world as it had been five centuries earlier and first we must remark that even at the very beginning of this century popular thought in england as elsewhere had retraced its steps so far as to acknowledge that if christianity were true true really and actually the catholic church was the only possible embodiment of it not only did the shrewdest agnostic minds of the time acknowledge this, such men as Hexley in the previous century, Sir Leslie Stephen, Malach, and scores of others, but even popular Christianity itself began to turn in that direction. Of course there were survivals and reactions, as we should expect. There was a small body of Christians in England, called Anglicans, who attempted to hold another view. There was that short-lived movement called Modernism that held yet a third position, but for the rest it was as i say it was the catholic church or nothing and just for a few years it seemed humanly possible that it might be nothing and now for the causes of the revival briefly i should say they were all included under one head the correlation of sciences and their coincidence into one point let us take them one by one we have only time to glance very superficially at each first there was psychology even at the end of the nineteenth century it was beginning to be perceived that there was an inexplicable force working behind mere matter this force was given a number of names the subliminal consciousness in man and nature in the animal vegetable and even mineral creation and it gave birth to a series of absurd superstitions such as that now wholly extinct sect of the christian scientists or the mental healers and among the less educated of the materialists to pantheism but the force was acknowledged and it was perceived to move along definite lines of law further in the great outburst of spiritualism it began gradually to be evident to the world that this force occasionally manifested itself in a personal though always a malevolent manner now it must be remembered that even this marked an immense advance in the circles called scientific since in the middle of the nineteenth century even the phenomena so carefully recorded by the church were denied these were now no longer denied since phenomena, at least closely resembling them, were matters of common occurrence under the eyes of the most sceptical. Of course, since the inquiries were made along purely scientific lines, lines which in those days were nothing other than materialistic, an attempt was made to account for the phenomena by new anti spiritual theories hastily put together to meet the emergency. But little by little, an uneasy sense began to manifest itself that the Church had already been familiar with the phenomena for about two thousand years, and that a body, which had marked and recorded facts with greater accuracy than all the scientists put together, at least had some claim to consideration with regard to hypothesis concerning them. Further, it began to be seen, what is perfectly familiar to us all now, that religion contributed an element which nothing else could contribute, that, for example, religious suggestion, as it was called in the jargon of the time, could accomplish things that ordinary suggestion could not. Finally, the researches of psychologists into what was then called the phenomenon of alternating personality prepared the way for a frank acceptance of the Catholic teaching concerning possession and exorcism, teaching which half a century before would have been laughed out of court by all who claimed the name of scientists. Psychology, then, up to this point, had rediscovered that a force was working behind physical phenomena, itself not physical that this force occasionally exhibited characteristics of personality and finally that the despised catholic church had been more scientific than scientists in her observation of facts and that this force dealt with along christian lines could accomplish what it was unable to accomplish along any other the next advance lay along the lines of comparative religion the study of comparative religion was practically a new science at the end of the nineteenth century and like all new sciences claimed at once before it had constructed its own to destroy the schemes of others for instance there were actually educated persons who advanced as an argument against christianity the fact that many christian dogmas and ceremonies were to be found in other religions it is extremely difficult for us now even in imagination to sympathize with such a mentality as this but it must be remembered that the science was very youthful and had all the inexperience and arrogance of youth As time went on, however, this argument began to disappear, except in very elementary, rationalistic manuals, as the fact became evident that while this or that particular religion had one or more identities with Christian doctrines, Christianity possessed them all, that Christianity, in short, had all the principal doctrines of all religions, or at least all doctrines that were of any strength to other religions, as well as several other necessary to weld these detached dogmas into a coherent whole that to use a simple metaphor christianity stood in the world like a light upon a hill and that partial and imperfect reflections of this light were thrown back with more or less clearness from the various human systems of belief that surrounded it and at last it became evident even to the most unintelligent that the only scientific explanation of this phenomenon lay in the theory that christianity was indeed unique and at the very least was the most perfect human system of faith perfectly human i mean and that it embodied and answered adequately all the religious aspirations of the human race the most perfect system of faith the world had ever seen a third cause was to be found in a new philosophy of evidence that began to prevail soon after the dawn of the century up to that period so-called physical science had so far tyrannized over men's minds as to persuade them to accept her claim that evidence that could not be reduced to her terms was not properly speaking evidence at all men demanded that purely spiritual matters should be, as they said, proved, by which they meant should be reduced to physical terms. Little by little, however, the preposterous nature of this claim was understood. People began to perceive that each order of life had evidence proper to itself, that there were such things, for instance, as moral proofs, artistic proofs, and philosophical proofs, and that these proofs were not interchangeable, To demand physical proof for every article of belief was as fantastic as to demand let us say a chemical proof of the beauty of a picture or evidence in terms of light or sound for the moral character of a friend or mathematical proof for the love of a mother for her child this very elementary idea seems to have come like a thunderclap upon many who claim the name of thinkers for it entirely destroyed a whole artillery of arguments previously employed against revealed religion For a time, pragmatism came to the rescue from the philosophical camp, but the assault was but a very short one, since tested by pragmatic methods, that is, the testing of the truth of a religion by its appeal to human consciousness. If one fact stood out luminous and undisputed, it was that the Catholic religion, with its eternal appeal in every century and to every type of temperament, was utterly supreme. Let us turn to another point. Mr. Manners lifted the glass he had been twirling between his fingers and drank it off with an appearance of great enjoyment. Then he smacked his lips once or twice and continued, Let us turn to the realm of politics, even to the realm of trade. Socialism, in its purely economic aspect, was a well meant attempt to abolish the law of competition-that is, the natural law of the survival of the fittest. It was an attempt, I say, and it ended, as we know, in disaster. For it established instead, so far as it was successful, the law of the survival of the majority, and tyrannized first over the minority and then over the individual. But it was a well-meant attempt, since its instinct was perfectly right, that competition is not the highest law of the universe, and there were several other ideals in socialism that were most commendable in theory. For example, the idea that the society sanctifies and safeguards the individual, not the individual the society, that obedience is a much neglected virtue, and so forth. Then, suddenly almost, it seemed to have dawned upon the world that all the ideals of socialism, apart from its methods and its dogmas, have been the ideals of Christianity, and that the Church had, in her promulgation of the law of love, anticipated the socialist discovery by about two thousand years. Further, that in the religious orders these ideals had been actually incarnate, and that by the doctrine of vocation, that is, by the freedom of the individual to submit himself to a superior, the rights of the individual were respected, and the rights of the society simultaneously vindicated. A very good example of all this is to be found in the poor law system. You remember that before the Reformation, and in Catholic countries long after, there was no poor law system, because the religious houses looked after the sick and needy. Well, when the religious houses were destroyed in England, the state had to do their work, You could not simply flog beggars out of existence, as Elizabeth tried to do. Then the inevitable happened, and it began to be a mark of disgrace to be helped by the state in a workhouse. People often preferred to starve. Then at the beginning of the twentieth century, a well-meant attempt was made, in the old age pensions and George's State Insurance Act, to remedy this and to help the poor in a manner that would not injure their self-respect. Of course, that failed, too. It is incredible that statesmen did not see it must be so. Old age pensions, too, and state insurance, so soon as it was socially digested, began to be considered a mark of disgrace, for the simple cause that it is not the receiving of money that is resented, but the motive for which the money is given, and the position of the giver. The state can only give for economic reasons, however conscientious and individually charitable statesmen might be, while the church gives for the love of God and the love of god never yet destroyed any man's self-respect well you know the end the church came forward once more and under certain conditions offered to relieve the state of the entire burden two results followed first all grievances vanished and secondly the whole pauper population of england within ten years was catholic in sympathies and yet all this is only reversion to medieval times a reversion made absolutely necessary by the failure of every attempt to supplant divine methods by human. Now look at it all in another way, the general situation, I mean. The socialists saw plainly the rights of the society, the anarchists saw the rights of the individual. How, therefore, were these to be reconciled? The church stepped in at that crucial point and answered, by the family, whether domestic or religious. For in the family you have both claims recognized, there is authority and yet there is liberty for the union of the family lies in love and love is the only reconciliation of authority and liberty now as i have put it and as we all now see it the argument is simplicity itself but it took a long time to be recognized and it was not until after the appalling events of the first twenty years of the century and the discrediting of the observed socialistic attempt to preach the law of love by methods of force that civilization as a whole saw the point yet for all that it was beginning to mould popular opinion even as early as nineteen ten turn now to a completely different plane turn to art this too drove men back to the church mr manners air was becoming now less professional and more vivid he glanced quickly from face to face with a kind of sharp triumph his long thin hands waved in slight gesture now and again Arch, you remember, in the end of the Victorian era had attempted to become realistic, had attempted, that is, the absurd impossibility, and photography exposed the absurdity. For no man can be truly a realist, since it is literally impossible to paint or to describe all that the eye sees. When photography became general, this began to be understood, since it was soon seen that the only photographer who could lay any claim to artistic work was the man who selected and altered and posed. Arranged his subject, that is to say, in more or less symbolic form. Then people began to see again that symbolism was the underlying spirit of art, as they had known perfectly well, of course, in medieval days, that art consisted in going beneath the material surfaces that reflected light, or the material events that happened, in painting and literature respectively, and, by a process of selection, of symbolising, not photographically representing, The ideas beneath the things, the substance beneath the accidents, the thought beneath the expression, you can call it what you like. Zola in literature, Strauss in music, the French school of painting, these reduced realism ad absurdum. Thus, once more the Catholic Church, in this, as in everything else, was discovered to have possessed the secret all along. The symbolic reaction therefore began, and all our music, all our painting, and all our literature today, Are frankly and confessedly symbolic that is catholic and this too you see pointed to the same lesson as psychology that beneath phenomena there was a force which transcended phenomena and that the church had dealt with this force knowing it to be personal through all her history finally and this was the crowning argument of all that correlated all the rest there was the growing scientific and popular perception of the recuperative power of the church that which our divine lord himself called the sign of the prophet jonas or resurrection there were of course countless other lines of advance in practically every science and they all pointed in the same direction and met so to speak from every quarter of the compass the end of the tunnel which the church had been boring through all the heaped-up stupidities and ignorances of man psychology tunneled and presently heard the voices of the exorcists and the echoes of lords through the darkness Human religions tunneled, Hinduism with its idea of a divine incarnation, Buddhism with its coarse apprehension of the eternal peace, of a beatific vision, North American religion with its guesses at sacramentalism, Savage religion with its caricature of a bloody sacrifice, all from various points, and presently heard through the tumult, the historical dogma of the incarnation of Christ, the dogma of eternal life, the sacramental system, and the sacrifice of the cross all proclaimed in one coherent and perfectly philosophical creed. Ideals of social reform met with the same experiences. The socialist, with his dream of a divine society, the anarchist, with his passionate nightmare of complete individual liberty, both ran up together in the heart of the black darkness against the vast outline of a divine family. That was a fact, and not a far-off ambition. A family that fell in Eden and became a competitive state, a holy family that redeemed Nazareth and all the world, a Catholic family, in whom was neither Jew nor Greek nor masters against men, in whom the doctrine of vocation secured the rights and the dignities of the society on one side and the individual on the other. Finally, art, wandering hither and thither in the mazes of realism, saw light ahead, and found in Catholic art and symbolism the secret of her life. This, then, was the result that the church was found to be eternally right in every plane. In plane after plane she had been condemned. Pilate, the law of separate nations, had found her guilty of sedition. Herod, the miracle-monger at one instant and the skeptic at the next, the scientist, in fact, had declared her guilty of fraud. Caiaphas had condemned her in the name of national religion. Or, again, she had been thought the enemy of art by the Greek-spirited, the enemy of law by the latins the enemy of religion by the hebraic pharisee she had borne her title written in greek and latin and hebrew she had been crucified and taunted as she hung there she had seemed to die and lo and behold when the third day dawned she was alive again for evermore from every single point she had been justified and vindicated men had thought to invent a new religion a new art a new social order a new philosophy they had burrowed and explored and digged in every direction and at the end when they had worked out their theories and found as they thought the reward of their labors they found themselves looking once more into the serene smiling face of catholicism she was risen from the dead once more and was seen to be the daughter of god with power there was a moment's silence there gentlemen said mr manners dropping back into the quiet professor that i think in a few words is the outline for which monsignor asked i hope i have not detained you too long it is the most extraordinary story i have ever heard said monsignor masterman ten minutes later as he threw himself down in his chair upstairs with father jervis sitting opposite certainly he puts it very well said the old priest smiling I think everyone was interested. It's not often that we can hear such a clear analysis of events. Of course, Manners has it all at his finger's end. It's his special subject, and— But the amazing thing to me, interrupted the other, is that this isn't just a dream or a prophecy, but a relation of facts. Do you mean to tell me that the whole world is Christian? The priest looked at him doubtfully. Monsignor, surely your memory isn't— Monsignor made an impatient gesture. Father, he said, it's exactly as I told you before lunch. I'll promise to tell you if my memory comes back. At present I remember practically nothing at all, except instinctively. All I know is that this story we have heard simply astounds me. I had a sort of idea that Christianity was ebbing from the world, that most thinking men had given up all belief in it, and now I find it's exactly the other way. "'Please treat me as if I had stepped straight out of the beginning of the century. "'Just tell me the facts, as if for the first time. "'Is it really true that practically the whole world is Christian?' "'The priest hesitated. "'You mean that, Monsignor?' "'Certainly.' "'Very well, then,' he paused again. "'But it's extraordinarily hard to know where to begin. "'Begin anywhere. It's all new to me.' "'Very good. Well, yes.' Roughly, we may say that the world is Christian, in the same sort of way, at least, in which Europe was Christian, say, in the twelfth century. There are survivals, of course, particularly in the East, where large districts still cling to their old superstitions, and there are even eminent men here and there who are not explicitly Catholics. But, as a whole, the world is Christian. Do you mean Catholic? The priest stared a moment. Why, yes what else all right go on well then to begin with england catholicism is not yet established as the state religion but it will only be a question of time and it may be said that all the laws are christian divorce divorce was abolished thirty years ago and fornication was made a felony ten years later said the priest quietly benefit of clergy also was restored three years ago and we have our own courts for heresy, with power to hand over convicted criminals to the secular arm. What? Certainly. It has been in force now for three years. Then what do you mean by saying that the Church isn't established? I mean that no religious test is demanded of officers of the State, and that bishops and abbots have no seat in Parliament. It was the enfranchisement of women that turned the tide once and for all. Do you mean that all women have the vote? They are under the same conditions as men. There is a severe educational test now, of course. Not more than about one in seventy adults ever get the vote at all, but the result is that we're governed by educated people. Stop. Is it a monarchy? Certainly. Edward IX, a young man, is on the throne. Go on. Christianity, then, holds the field. Of course, there are infidels left, who write letters to the newspapers sometimes and hold meetings and so on, but they are practically negligible. As regards church property, practically everything has finally been given back to us-I mean, in the way of buildings, and, very largely, revenues too. All the cathedrals are ours, and all parish churches built before the Reformation, as well as all other churches and parishes where there was not organized Protestant resistance. "'I thought you said there were no Protestants.' Father Jervis suddenly laughed aloud. "'Monsignor, are you really serious? Do you really mean you wish me to go on?' "'Good God, man, I'm not playing a game. Go on, please. Tell me about the Protestants.' "'Well, of course there are some Protestants left. I think they've got four or five churches in London. And—and—' "'Yes, I'm sure of it. They've got some kind of bishop.' but really, I scarcely know. I shall have to look it up. Well, go on. Well, that's the state of England. Practically everybody is a Catholic, from the king downwards. The last remains of church property was only actually given back to us last year. That's why the monks haven't come back to Westminster yet. What about the rest of the world? Well, first Rome. Austria drove out the house of Savoy nearly twenty-five years ago, and the Holy Father— What's his name? Gregory the Nineteenth. He's a Frenchman. Well, the Holy Father is temporal ruler of the whole of Italy, but the Emperor of Austria administers it. Then France is, of course, a very small country." Why, small? Well, you know the European War of 1914?" Monsignor interrupted by a large sigh. Good heavens, he said, how I shall have to read. I'm sorry. Go on, please. Well, France is a very small country, but intensely Catholic. The Church is re-established there. Is it a monarchy, too? Certainly. The Orleans line came back after the war. Louis XXII is king. I was saying that the Church is re-established there and is practically supreme. That is traceable entirely to Pius X's policy. Pius X? Why? Yes, Monsignor? I know all about that, but I thought Pius X simply ruined everything. So they said at the time. His policy was to draw the lines tight and to make no concessions. He drove out every half-hearted Catholic by his regulations, and the result was a small but extraordinarily pure body. The result has been that the country was re-evangelized and has become almost a land of saints. They say that Our Lady— Well, go on with the other countries— Spain and Portugal are, of course, entirely Catholic, like France. The monarchy was reestablished established in both of them in about 1935, but Germany, Germany's the weak spot. Well... You see, the emperor isn't a Christian yet, and socialism lingers on there with extraordinary pertinacity. Practically, Berlin is the holy city of Freemasonry. It's all organized from there, such as it is, and no one is quite comfortable about Germany. The Emperor Frederick is a perfectly sincere man, but really rather uneducated. He still holds on to some sort of materialism, and the result is... I see. But there are hopes of his conversion. He's to be a our sales next week, and that's a good sign. Well, what about America? Oh, America's chiefly English, and very like England. You mean she isn't Republican? Of course not, my dear Monsignor please go on as i asked you tell me when she ceased to be republican why i scarcely know murmured the priest it must have been about nineteen thirty i suppose i know there was a lot of trouble before that civil wars and so forth but at any rate that was the end japan got a good deal of the far west but the eastern states came in with canada and formed the american colonies and the south of course became latinized largely through ecclesiastical influence "'Well,' then America asked England. "'Stop, please, I shall get bewildered. "'What about the religion?' "'Well, the Empire of Mexico.' "'Eh?' "'The Empire of Mexico.' "'Whose emperor?' "'The King of Spain, Monsignor,' said the priest patiently. "'Well, that used to be called South America. "'It's all the Empire of Mexico now, and belongs to Spain.' That's solidly Catholic, of course, and the American colonies, old North America, that's like England, it's practically Catholic, of course, but there are a few infidels and socialists. Australia? Australia is entirely Irish and Catholic. And Ireland itself? Oh, Ireland developed enormously as soon as she had gained independence, but immigration continued and the Irish strength really lies abroad. Then an odd thing happened ireland continued to empty obeying some social law we don't even yet understand properly and the religious began to get possession of the country in an extraordinary way until they owned all the large estates and even most of the towns you may say that ireland is practically one religious enclosure now of course she's a part of the british empire but her real social life lies in her colonies Australia succeeded in getting home rule from ireland about twenty-five years ago monsignor pressed his hands to his head "'It sounds like the wildest dream,' he said. "'Hadn't I better?' "'No, go on. I want an outline. What about the East?' "'Well, old superstitions still linger on in the East, especially in China, but the end is quite certain. It is simply a matter of time. "'But—but I don't understand. If the whole world is practically Christian, what is there left to do?' The priest smiled. Ah, but you must remember Germany. There are great forces in Germany. It's there that the danger lies. And you must remember, too, that there is no universal arbitrator yet. Nationalism is still pretty strong. There might easily be another big European war. Then you hope? Yes, we're all working for the recognition of the Pope as universal arbitrator, as he was practically in Europe in the Middle Ages. Of course, as soon as the Sovereigns acknowledge officially that they hold all their rights at the will of Rome, the thing will be done. But it's not done yet, except... Good God. Look here, Monsignor, you've had enough, said the priest, rising, though I must say you have followed it closely enough. Are you certain that it is quite new to you? Don't you remember? It's not only new, it's inconceivable. I understand it perfectly, but... Well, you've had enough. NOW WHAT ABOUT COMING TO SEE THE CARDINAL? I FEEL SURE HE'LL INSIST UPON YOUR TAKING a REST INSTANTLY. I FEEL RATHER GUILTY. STOP. TELL ME ABOUT LANGUAGES. WHY DID YOU TALK TO ME IN LATIN THIS MORNING? Ecclesiastics generally do, and so do the laity a great deal. Europe is practically bilingual. Each country keeps up its own tongue and learns Latin as well. You must rub up your Latin, Monsignor. WAIT A MOMENT. WHAT ARE YOU GOING TO SAY TO THE CARDINAL? "'Well, hadn't I better tell him the whole thing, just as it happened? "'Then you needn't explain.' "'The other pondered a moment. "'Thanks very much, Father. "'Stop. "'Do I talk English all right?' "'Perfectly. "'But—oh, well. "'And I—did I do all right at lunch? "'Did anyone suspect anything?' "'You did perfectly. "'You seemed a little absent-minded once or twice, but that was quite in keeping.' The two smiled at one another pleasantly. Then I'll be going, said the priest. Will you wait here till I come for you? End of Part 1 Chapter 2